Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. And joining me today is fellow Cypher enthusiast, fellow Mage enthusiast, fellow National Park enthusiast, and much more experienced game writer than me, though. And uh, also fellow podcaster, apparently, as we were finding out in the pre-show, Chris Negline. Uh, Chris, how you doing? Oh, I'm not doing too bad. How are you? I'm going to go with presentable. You and I were talking about pitching games in the cipher system, and that was this. And I really, for an April Fool's Day joke, I really want to go up to Monty and be like, hey, Monty, I really want to take the cipher system to make a game that takes place at the nexus of many worlds where several political factions fight each other. Just because that's... That is a game Monty has made seven times so far <laughs> as we go from Planescape to Beyond the Doorways to Plane Breaker to Invisible Sun. What was he had to, I, I remember putting the other full list and there were seven of them. <laughs> Are you thinking of The Strange? Yes. The Strange as Those well. Those technically Bruce's. Noted. Heavily <laughs> involved with. But yeah, Bruce 100%. Cordell, I think I think Bruce also cut his teeth on, on Planescape. But I, I am curious if Monty would be self-aware. Uh, uh, then then you have The Darkest House as another one. I think there was there was one or two more. I think he may have. I don't know if he had his fingers in, in every way at all. But, but anyway. So yeah, you've done many things, but this is Mage the Podcast. Chris, how did you run into Mage? Like a lot of people, my friends were like, you have to try this new game called Vampire. <laughs> and my very first vampire was a bulimic gangrel because mm-hmm. that was the only vampire I could wrap my head around. Okay. I had not yet really read Anne Rice. So the whole idea of a sexy vampire hadn't really gotten under my skin. I don't remember if it was then or a little later. They said, here's the whole line we have promised. And I was actually really excited about Changeling. I was like, we get to play Fey Folk. That sounds awesome. And if Mage had been any less of a game than it was, I would have skipped over it. But when I saw it and I read it, I was like, holy fork balls. This is amazing. And I was in college a little longer than I planned to be. Mm -hmm. And in that college town for even longer. And so for more years than I really want to admit, I had a weekly or biweekly as in like maybe twice a week Mm -hmm. Mage game going on. It got to the point where one of my PCs became a NPC in everyone else's game. Usually his name would change, but the philosophy was it was Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. He was a biker looking dude who was an Akashic brother. And then when they did the rules that said you could like implant magic and mundane things like art, I said, well, then he has a jacket. And on the back of the jacket is the Akashic Brotherhood wave symbol. But it's done in such a way that when you look at it, you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's that's cool. So if somebody's like try to stab them in the back, they'd have a moment where they're just kind of assaulted by this sense of tranquility for just that second. He might need to turn around and go, dude, dude, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a one-way street. Sometimes it's a highway, but when you're on that road, it's only, only one road. When anyone says like, <laughs> makes a comparison to Zen, the art of motorcycle maintenance, whatever one says about Robert Persig, I'm immediately thought that the person's like, oh, you're somewhat disappointed in your son <laughs> that's usually not the <laughs> message that people do it's and it's like oh yeah it kind of reminded me of rashomon oh you mean that there was a clear story and no one listens to peasants is that the lesson you want me to take from this <laughs> like, i don't think this is but yeah it's kind of like the Anne rice vampire thing you're like yeah i'm a vampire um you look like dumpster fire that threw up mildly <laughs> and you slink away from anything interesting i'm sexy you and i have very different notions <laughs> of what this is and speaking about things that are sexy but misunderstood <laughs> we're talking about mystery flesh pit national park did you ever have this moment where you're like the progenitors and the void engineers are not getting enough love and I will make the cypher system game where they are finally the real stars because you have inadvertently (laughs) created what I think is one of the best technocrat games that could occur and I thank you (laughs) for that if nothing else well I can't take full credit for that because the game is based off this really crazy world building Mm -hmm. website by Trevor Roberts where it's kind of an alternate reality. If you don't mind, I'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the setup for it is this alternate reality starts in the 1970s when uh, James Jackson, a 1970s oilman, is drilling for oil and he pulls up blood, just oodles of blood. Mm -hmm. I mean, gallons of blood. And he discovers these caverns that are just filled with an organism that has its own ecology, but it is living as well. So, of course, what does he do? He sells tickets. 
come see the living caverns. And, you know, and then it becomes a site to be mined for byproducts and it becomes a national park and crazy things happen. And it's just, you know, you have these Trevor did is he has every, every bit of it is these pages of like, what am I looking at? But mm-hmm. when you read it, it's very much in a sort of a bureaucraties, you know, droll, double speak government sort of style stuff. So it's kind of like cosmic horror meets bureaucratic satire. Well, so you call it you call it cosmic horror, and the thing that strikes me about it. So for anyone who's interested, please go to Me- uh, Mystery Flush Pit National Park. Please note that we are going to discuss, in a very literal sense, probably some visceral stuff in the course of this episode, because systematically, what I imagine something is possibly important is literally the viscera of this entity. Chris has created a cipher system game, and that is kind of going to be the core of it. The important part to me about it is everything is in world. That when we see something, we see the evolution of the signage for the Mystery Flesh Pit National Park as it goes from an installation of the Anodyne Corporation to the Mystery uh, Flesh Pit with Caver Coop directing you where you can have fun to it being a national park. And it has that spot on white on brown in the national park font, which I think is just... Helvetica. And then eventually the the 2007 post attention warning sign, do not heed what is calling to you kind of signage. And to me, one of the cores of cosmic horror is, so I, I would agree to his elements of cosmic horror, but it doesn't hit that Lovecraftian cosmicism because man here is spitting in the face of their insignificance. It would be like if Cthulhu came down and he said, bow before me and human said, make me, you look stupid. And Cthulhu is like, hey, I have feelings too. And we're like, well, we have feelings too. And then Cthulhu just kind of sat there and we turned him into an amusement park. Like that that cynical triumphalism is very heavily there. So you, so you mentioned the timeline starts in the 70s. Someone pulls up blood instead of oil, realizes there's a big in there. Then kind of how does the timeline move forward? Well, there's two separate timelines, which sometimes can be, you know, because everything is, like you said, done in world. So it's not a convenient timeline, which... So one of my little projects I have to do in the game is make a timeline. But there's two separate ones. There is there's the front acreage and then there's the back acreage. And the front acreage is the tickets and the national park and then eventually the black site that it becomes. And the back half is always this mining concern, which may actually even be bigger. You're like, what would you mine out of something that is a living organism? And it hints that there's these byproducts and things that end up in your Coca-Cola and end up in your laundry detergent. <laughs> what was the uh, what was the brand of soda? The, uh, the it was little... Coke, but it was Heartthrob. That's what it was. Uh, Taste the sensation, Heartthrob Coke. And then we you have the amniotic bath, which you can get as a home jacuzzi installation. So we have this discovery near the town of Gumption, Texas, that is done. How does it then start? Like, what kind of would you say is the first era of things? Well, in the 1970s, I think it would be kind of a bit of an homage to like, you know, roadside attractions mm-hmm. and the 1970s and how, you know, like, um, have you ever heard of Action Park? Yes. Yes, exactly. Those kind of Action Park days. Like, would you imagine anyone letting kids do that these days? Mm-hmm. And I think part of what we, with the cosmic horror bit, because we're also talking about the laundry files, right? From Charles Strauss. Not familiar. Charles Strauss, who's a fantastic science fiction author, has... A cosmic horror meets bureaucratic satire uh, with the laundry files, which is kind of like Delta Green with satire thrown in. This is an organization that goes out, hunts out the things that are unknown, and then has to file tons and tons of paperwork when they do. And part of it, I think, is while humanity may still be futile, they are too focused on their own hubris to notice how futile and insignificant they are until it's too late. I think that's a bit of the flavor that comes in with Charles Strauss and and the mystery flesh pit. I don't know. I, I'm going to give some points for the tenacity of humanity, but I certainly like the <laughs> the action park reference. The thing that prevented me from ever picking up a Laundry Files book is uh, a friend of mine was like, yeah, have you ever read the Laundry Files? I'm like, no, is that a book? And he's like, no, I just finished the 11th of them or something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, nope. On moral principle, I will never read a book that is billed as the first book in the blank cycle, generally. So the one, 
<laughs> very rarely is there an exception to that. I think the three body problem was the first and last time I've gone like two books into a series. I just, I, I have, I have a spouse, I have a stepkid, I have a job. I just don't have <laughs> for these doorstops. Although I think the, the Laundry Files books are more reasonably sized and paced. It, it doesn't seem to be one of those things where it's like, it was the third age of the second age or, or what have you. There is this cosmic horror, this giant thing in Texas, what does the early discovery or exploration of it look like? Well, for me, there's a, the kind of, it goes a little bit by decades, like the seventies and the eighties are kind of like a, a combination of, uh, you know, action park. I can't imagine they would do that roadside attractions, mm-hmm. a little bit of the Midwestern gumption to do what you got with what you have and find pride in it even if it's kind of a weird, perverse pride. And then it gets into the the 90s and the 80s, and that seems to be when it, well, the front of it is like a national park, and you have all this great signage and craziness about what what type of wildlife you're going to bump into. Mm -hmm. And, you know, please don't smoke inside the lungs of the creature because pregnant women are are nearby. It hints at the 80s and the 90s is kind of an alternate reality where they're putting these byproducts into laundry detergent, soda, and there's you can buy a bio-organic, desktop computer for a short time before something happens. In 2007, that is when the big, big thing happens. Basically, at this point, it has become such an attraction. As you know, some places as a tourist attraction, they have a elevator restaurant that rotates, right? Now imagine that upside down in the throat of the creature. So people are having, they're watching viscera go by their windows as they're eating Ivan, spaghetti and you know, meatballs. I don't know. Suddenly the creature coughs and swallows and it's a disaster and it's even documented on the website how there is like an emergency broadcast signal there's a hint of what the creature might actually look like underneath and for a small time very short but devastating time period tentacles are flailing up that block the sun depending on where you're standing things are in place one there is a government report that talks about with things slightly redacted a certain countermeasure or what it was, yeah. Procedure that is actually a ritual with items A, B, C, and D that if they're spun or more effective, that are some sort of idols or something, who knows what they are, artifacts of some sort. They're also depumping huge amounts of anesthetics and you know sleeping agents into the creature. From 2007 to this day, it's all black site as they keep mining the creature because you know mining the byproducts and still selling it keeps it sedated helps keeps it sedated, allegedly. So those are kind of the big events and errors that happen with this creature. And the whole website is done as a defunct style ch- documentation. I don't know if you've seen the defunct channel on YouTube or not. Yeah, defunct land. Defunct land. Love it. And that was one of the reasons that also got me, you know, right into this. Because, you know, they're doing it from the past. Like, I think one of the things you can get is a 2007 t-shirt from the devastation that has blood on it and everything else. So looking through this, we have this, what is referred to as the Permian Basin superorganism, which we know is at least 15,000 meters deep. That is the the deepest recorded one. It is the scientific curiosity. It is much like Carlsbad Cavern. It starts as just a bunch of people exploring something kind of out of curiosity. In this case, it kind of starts as an oil interest. At some point, a deep core mining organization by the name of Anodyne, which is a portmanteau of the two things. I very much like the play on words of calling it Anodyne. Like one, it keeps it sedated to, no, there's nothing. Anodyne is literally the name of our company. Um, (laughs) It's like the mom corporation in Futurama. What what, what, what wrong could mom do? Yeah. And it, it kind of goes through that that Wild West period, and then it becomes something happens, and it becomes formalized into a national park, which you very much get the idea that it is, we couldn't keep this hidden, so what is the way in which we can make it public the safest way possible? And when you create a, a set of walkways within a superorganism, and they go this way but not that way, it's one of those things where you kind of politely nudge people in a direction. They don't even realize that there's a choice that they're not getting. The illusionist like kind of school of GMing where the players can go through any door they want, no matter what door they open, they're still going to find the orc or what have you. And at the same time, as you mentioned, there is a government concern and there is a corporate concern. And this, to me, very much 
mirrors a number of structures that could exist in a mage game. And it ha we had the event within Mage Canon in 1999 when Zapathosaurus rises in Bangladesh. A lot of people die because suddenly an antediluvian pops up and what happens from there? And I think this is a much more kind of controlled way that we could take that conversation. So, okay, my characters are fighting the technocracy. They're bad. They're keeping things concealed. Oh, okay. Let me show you a thing we are keeping under wraps. They discover the Permian Basin superorganism. Make up some numbers. 3.8 million people live on top of it. If we don't keep this thing down, this bad thing happens. Oh, by the way, the amniotic fluid that comes out of this also happens to be what is being used to power one of your loved one's medical therapies. Are we still the bad guys? You're more than welcome to answer that uh, however you want. And then you mentioned this kind of big event that there is this moment of hubris where they're like, okay, let's just shove a giant revolving thing in this creature's gullet so people can see it. There is that commercialization interest in it. At minimum, you can take it as either like crass commercialism or naivete. Like, how could we be so stupid? as to put a revolving restaurant inside of it, which has both a Trader Vic's and a Burger King. That was the one thing I found unbelievable. <laughs> they, they would never be immediately next to each other within the mystery flesh bit. And, and if we want to, within our games, that can be a commentary on global climate change, where we're like, it is so obvious the threat and peril that is here, and we are just whistling past that graveyard. That is certainly a thing. But also to me, it very clearly has themes of curiosity. Like there's a reason there's dead bodies at the bottom of caves because someone is just like, yeah, I know I literally can't see anything, but what What if I keep going? Just uh, a little longer. Just, <laughs> just, just, just for two more. Just a little longer. And, and we have all of these threads to tug on. And one of them that strikes out to me is kind of how well the ambiguity is between who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, if anyone. In the game version of this, kind of what do you consider to be the frames or the playable factions or like the entities a character could be a part of? In our game, we have three frameworks. Actually, you could go deeper. I had to just basically take the top three I thought were the most fun and most playable. If uh, your audience is looking into the flesh pit, you'll find out that the deepest layer... <laughs> looking into the flesh pit, yeah. Yes, uh, literally. <laughs> is something that doesn't apply. It's a layer of tissue that doesn't work with science. They don't know what it is or what it works. And I'm, I always thought that, you know, thinking a mage, that would be the perfect spot of like, oh, this is where it's seeping through from the far edges the number. Yeah, this is, um, uh, to, to run with that, this is Julidian. This is some cosmic superorganism. This is the Earth evolving. This is something that if woken up, it will consume all of humanity. The Nefandi are very interested in having it awaken, or alternatively, very much don't want it to be. Or I think there's also space for the, oh, wow, life in the cosmos is just way weirder. So I really want there to be a game where there are verbena protesters saying, this has a right to live too unmolested, stay off the Permian superorganism. <laughs> I think there's a lot of directions you could go there. And, and as you mentioned, yes, there is very clearly science stops working here. And that's always a good point to have on a map in Mage. Sorry, I interrupted. 100%. <laughs> we have three frameworks. Uh, one is the W-2s, where you are employees, but you're like the frontline employees. So you're the park rangers, which actually would be more like Texas ranger versus elven rangers. So you're more like security and you know, U.S. marshals, park guides, which would be like the people that are exploring things and trying to figure out what's going on next. Basically, you're blue collar sci-fi guys who are just doing search and rescues, trying to mine and trying to make it to the end of the day while trying to also ignore what's going on around them. When we talk about game mechanics, I'll touch base on that. And then I have the 1099s, which are basically the subcontractors where you're men in black, actually people, you know, person in black. Black suits. And yeah. black suits or the containment assessment retaliation expediency unit or care, care yeah. units. Exactly. <laughs> Who avail things out, whatever that thing may be, whether it's someone that's escaped or something that's escaped or someone that's responding to a side effect. And then I have the redacteds, which are bas is basically is your straight up fugitive scenario where either because you've, your parents and your great, great, great parents have lived on top of this thing, or you were splashed with something at work. And now you have, I guess, comic books, you'd call it mutations, but we're scientific people here. So we call it a PBSO manifestation. 
Uh, oh, well, that's Permian, Permian Basin Superorganism super Manifestation. Got it. Yes. <laughs> my, my bad. <laughs> and um, when you when you mention those, I also think clearly the greatest artifact we have here is the Baptist Convention uh, denouncing the exploration of the mystery pit, partially because Sanctify magazine very much looks like it uses the same font as, as Mage Revised. To you, are those frames, is that one of those things where the table picks that and says, we're going to have a 1099 game. We're going to have a W2 game. And for listeners outside of the US, uh, W2 and 1099 are common tax forms and employment forms that are used in the United States. A W2 indicates kind of your tax withholdings and 1099 recognizes supplemental income. And as Chris said, if you were like a contractor or or something like that. So is it, does a table mix those or does it pick one? I basically put those three frameworks out there and suggest that those are different things that Game Master can do. And then also kind of suggest how they get the effects they need or the vibe they need at the table. Like a perfect example is straight up horror is one of those uh, genres where you need everybody at the table as a buy-in. There's just one person who just can't handle the, the tension and has to make very silly jokes. I mean, a little humor, of course, and Horror is a classic, but I mean, if there's just one person who can't can't do the buy-in, you know, it doesn't work as half as well as it could compared to like just dungeon crawling. Yeah, it is not resilient to premise rejection. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so I choose to be a W-2. We're a whole bunch of people that are on the inside. What could that mean? What do you suggest that Anodyne does? And if you want to keep some of that secret... Or if you just want to posit some ideas, I imagine just like a lot of these games, you can have them be the evil mega corporation, or you can just have them be the misguided mega corporation. So, <laughs> so we well can- to get the satire going, it you know misguided is usually a little little easier to pitch. The default usually double two is for the demos and playtests I've been doing has been basically search and rescue a bus, and as you'll see in uh, Mystery Flesh Pit, what a bus would look like has broke down and you're out to save the day and bring those people back and also deal with people who seem oddly more frustrated that they didn't get their money's worth and want a rebate and screaming at somebody inside a giant organism versus just staying inside the whole time. But the spin on that is also what I have as a a mechanic called conformity. As you know, with cosmic horror, you know, sanity this and sanity that it's been done quite a bit for me. It's like, okay, so, you spend all your time in or around or talking about this creature. There's no corners. Everything is round. Everything is red or brown and has odors to it. So then when you go back to your office in your cubicle where there's corners and they're straight and there's air conditioning and suddenly you just want to make your post-it notes just perfectly square with the corner of your desk. (laughs) So it's, you just have this obsessiveness with like rules of order and, you know, folders and organization and reading the manual, damn it. Somebody may be screaming, but you've got to fill out that incident form because if you, you don't fill it out now, you're going to forget everything later when you're filling it out. Mechanically, what does that look like? Because to me as a mage player, that very much sounds like quiet, that a character is experiencing what in M20 is referred to more di- morbidity, denial, or madness. In this case, kind of denial as to what is actually happening. And dissociation is a pretty powerful technique of self-preservation when things are going really bad. What mechanically does that kind of look like? Because to the best of my knowledge, Cypher doesn't really have a baked-in sanity system. It doesn't have a, it also doesn't have a corruption mechanic either. So those are two things I put into the game. Basically with conformity, it's tougher for you to refuse to do things that don't make sense at the time because you're wanting to do something that is like paperwork, reading a manual, things like that. And then for the PBSO manifestations, which are powers in the game, Cypher, your powers, it's action adventure, it's superhero. So you get a power, it's cool. That's not how that works in Mystery Flesh Pit National Park role-playing game. Every power has a downside, has a risk to it. It also gives you a chance of getting more corruption coming later. So it sounds like for the corruption mechanic, I very much like this in that it's almost like in a F20 game, it's like roll to resist the siren call of the siren. And here it's like, 
role to resist the the siren call of being on Dick's card organization duty or something like that. <laughs> so I, I very much like the idea that your character would kind of be intolerant of any rules deviation and be disproportionately interested in something that is bold and, and tedious. And I could see that pulling that into a, a mage game, especially for a, a Void Engineer or an NWO character who's had constant exposure to the ridiculous or even the hermetic. You're in some sort of weird pocket dimension where every day the only thing you can see in the sky or what appears to be giant manifestations of cytomegalovirus or something like that. No, no, no. You're really interested in updating the card catalog in the library just kind of as a way of, of keeping that. What does the corruption look like? So I get a superpower. I have some corruption. How does that influence play? Like how does that downside come into, into consideration? Cypher has a system that has different names. It's called the horror mode. It's called void mode if it's in science fiction. But basically what it is, is in Cypher, when a natural one is rolled, it's called a GM intrusion. And now you would automatically think, as a lot of people do, that it's something, oh, it's bad. It happens on a one. It's got to be basically a critical fail. It's got to be a botch. In Cypher, you're encouraged to not make that happen. I mean, it can happen, but it'd be more interesting if it's something that's more of a complication. Like suddenly it rains and everybody, including the bad guys, are having a bad time. So when you have horror mode, which I call spiral mode because I've tweaked it a little bit, it's no longer one. It's a one or a two. And then if it gets rolled and it happens, it goes to a three. So it keeps increasing because one of the things I've noticed with a lot of corruption mechanics is that they're there, but a lot of them take, they either seem to take forever or never to happen, or they happen really quick. There's no way to kind of tweak a lever and how quick that corruption may happen. So with horror mode, you just, you have to tell the players when it happens, when it starts, it's not always a constant thing. So in that way, you can say, this is now a dangerous situation. So if you're going to start using your powers, it's going to come with an increased risk than just doing it off on the side. We, especially when there's people, again, screaming or monsters are coming at you. You know, your boss is on the line demanding to know why you haven't filled out that 382331 yet. It sounds like you kind of want something that is going to continually ratchet up the tension, not necessarily till the character's demise, but to some proper anagoresis exactly. or or catharsis or something like that. And it kind of reminds me of the churn from the Expanse game or alternatively the stress mechanic from Alien. Um, 100%. Yeah. Both, um, both of those are right in that same line. And I like that, that it's like, no, 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 everything's fine. But once once we start doing magic in this dangerous situation, in this, in this weird little side realm or inside this thing, I'm going to say the difficulties going to ramp up. But if you botch, if you get at least one one, we're going to count all the twos in there as well, or the one twos and the threes or something like that. And that's going to go into a collateral pool that I can do. And the other thing you kind of mentioned that I like is the idea of the GM intrusion, which additional initially I didn't like, but it is to me a formalization of a thing that always existed. Right? 100%. <laughs> so, yeah. For the, the yeah. audience. GM intrusion has two flavors. One mm -hmm. is the one where it happens on the die as you mention it, but you can also, as a GM, just introduce a, uh, you know, and just uh, like Terry said, the thief unlocks the lock, he opens it, and as a GM, you might naturally say, oh, but down the hall, there's a guard coming this way, what are you going to do? Cypher and a GM intrusion, you can say, oh, by the way, there's a security card coming down the hall. If you accept this complication, you'll get some XP. Oh, and you'll have to give some of that to your friend. So now your friend's are also saying, yeah, you should take that because I want some of that XP as well. And that's what I keep saying about GM intrusions is that's something I was doing anyway. Now I have a mechanic to bribe my players or even better yet, once or twice I've had happen because you can say, no, I, I don't want the security guard. I got enough going on. I'm kind of stressed at the table. This is my fun time, not my stress time. I'll pay you one XP for that security guard to just keep walking the other way. That's the beauty of it. If, if your players are like, nope, I'm not in the mood for that no thank you, or they're like, yeah, yeah let's do that. And they ex they kind of go along for the ride with the complication you would do anyway. Yeah, the, the GM intrusion mechanic is very much formalizing what has kind of already been there. And it kind of creates a formal permission structure where the storyteller says, hey, I think I have an interesting complication I would like to introduce. If you do, you're going to get something out of it. And that can, that can helpfully solve three things. One, it kind of signposts it to say, yeah, 
I know I'm making this a little more complicated on purpose because I think it's interesting. And then you make the wager. Here's the thing. Uh, two, it makes XP not this thing that is this monotonic ratchet that increases, but it makes it another thing that you spend. You can have health points, magic points, and then you have the meta currency of experience points. So it makes a clear delineation between what is a character mechanic. My character has health points. My character has points of willpower. I have experience. Terry at the table gets to use that to influence kind of that economy. The other thing it lets you do is it kind of gives you a physical token. Like, I don't know if this is going to be part of your, your backer kit or whatever, but like having the, the blood spattered XP cipher cards, I think would be kind of cool. Like you're, <laughs> you're like, Hey, I'll give you two points of, uh, of amniotic reference. And you're like, Oh, for going down the next yield tube, I'm there or what have you. And it also creates an interesting thing where you can receive XP from a GM intrusion, but you can also spend XP to kind of re-roll things or retry things. So you get a resource that if it doesn't go as well as you had hoped, you can probably spend to get out of the problem in the first place. So I certainly kind of find that an interesting thing. So we have that idea of kind of the, the tensioning ramping up and, and you kind of cordon off things as this is, this is when the horror starts. This is when the tense part starts. Uh, what other themes do you think the game is good at exploring? Quite a few. I mean, in a way, the Mystery Flesh Pit to me just becomes kind of the framework for why your world is, your modern day world is nerd trope. As Ken and Robin at Ken and Robin talk about stuff, often call it when you add that extra bit of supernatural or science fiction to a historical or modern day game. I got to the point where I was like, I could put in werewolves. What are werewolves? Werewolves are evidently people. Of course, when it comes to werewolf, it's not just a werewolf like you would in, in World of Darkness. It's going to be something that has claws and teeth and is vaguely wolf man shape. Because uh, I also think in Mystery Flesh Pit, they hint that there are more flesh pits out there. That just happens to be the biggest one and most publicly known. So suddenly your your group is part of a team that needs to either find these or keep them hidden or in one maybe particularly small case, get it destroyed. It gives us an in-world explanation for something weird, which is always fun in a technocrat game where you're like, no, that's not a ghost. That is a uh, that is a post-life manifested engram. That is actually a sign that the community has not yet fully grieved. We need to prevent this person from having these weird dreams and the ghost will go away. Will that actually happen? Eh. Um, <laughs> But like we have this giant pit, what are some key locations in it to kind of present what this looks like? So you and I were talking before the show and I said, Hey, I want to be able to give people kind of a concrete image. And part of that is done by the fact that the original author, Trevor Roberts has done a wonderful job in some cases, literally illustrating it. <laughs> but one of the problems with cosmic horror in a game is you kind of have to be able to describe it. You have to describe the undescribable. You come up with weird ways to do it. But when people are like, no, 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 no. Tell me what the Mego looks like. <laughs> You're in that position. So what what are some of the parts of the flesh pit? There's, uh, you know, I think the most famous one, and of course the one you'll see right off the bat, is the big orifice. Just this big, well, you know, depending on the, the rating of your, uh, of your podcast, we may or may not get into what it exactly looks like, but there are also cranes and wires that go down into it. Some of the great fantastical pictures and stuff that you'll see is the bronchial forests. Yes, huge lungs that people basically take hiking trips into it when it's a national park. And it also gets into describing how in different seasons, they're either inhaling or exhaling. And in those periods when like, especially when there's like an exhale and a lack of oxygen, things inside the pit, which is in a whole ecosystem are much more agitated. Oh, we've mentioned the amniotic uh, springs where people can go down and yes, it looks like those mineral springs you jump into, but when you get in, when you get into these, you feel more than just really good. Mm -hmm. Might be a, might be a good honeymoon spot as, as well. And as um, you mentioned, the, the flavor of Coke that may or may not have come out of that, uh, Coke heartthrob. <laughs> so, and that is exactly. easy enough to drop directly into a game that there is some weird product that we can have the soil and green, green as people moment, spoiler alert, <laughs> which is perfectly fine. But I think the real interesting thing is when we do the flip side and it's not strictly the commercial thing. And you had mentioned the 81 organic tissue interface technology with, with the tagline, you can't find a more powerful computer in, in this century. 
<laughs> there, there's some genuine upsides to it. So yeah, we have the we have the bronchial forest. We have um, we have the main nexial tube that it kind of goes into the the orifice, the mouth. Because some people <laughs> listen to the show with their kids, which is probably not the greatest thing. Uh, any other kind of interesting locations? You mentioned eventually after like 30 kilometers, between 15 and 30 kilometers, we hit this substrate where things just kind of start behaving differently. They call it the blue tissue or the blue zone. Okay. I believe. And yeah, it, it, it gets to the point where it's like, we're going to drop a diving bell to see what happens. It's like, they know distances don't work the same in there. The, it was a, like a straight up little classic. We put a diving bell down and then nothing, when it, we brought it back up, it didn't have people anymore. Yep. And maybe those people come back up in a couple of years and they're perfectly fine and no one remembers what happens. Maybe you have to go into the Umbra to recover them. I do like the idea that you're like, that this is being fought over because, oh wow, this is a creature so large. It has its own reality zone and it has the ability to burrow through the gauntlet. And so if you're playing a game that still has the Avatar Storm occurring, I could see this as being a very hot commodity, especially if it there are different places that go near a Black Spiral Dancer Hive or near a fond to call or something like that. I like the idea of inverting the trope that things that are underground are bad and it just being like, nope, this one's just kind of weird as, <laughs> as kind of an, uh, an alternative thing. Uh, any other places that you, you thought were particularly inventive? And if, if anything, what is it like kind of describing those to someone playing a game? Like how do you turn that into a rule book thing? Well, one of the things that's kind of cool is there is a web of the, uh, a well of the ab humans where they found four corpses that range from like, BC to like bones are made out of a polymer. Like there is a, a hint. Time doesn't even time doesn't really work right at some point somewhere in the human flesh pit. I imagine well when I as a game master and I'm I'm you know describing it. Well, for one thing, people always say, well, it should smell like dead meat, right? I'm like, no, it's it's a living thing. So it should smell like sweat and halitosis. You know, it's going to still smell not great, but it's not going to smell like a dead thing. But they mentioned that it has several hearts and it has a whole circulatory track that goes all the way through and around it with hearts and electricity. But uh, I mentioned usually, you know, you're always stepping on something soft. The ground is always red and, and f you know, fleshy and giving. One of the artifacts you're going to find in the game that's also in the on the website is a really huge 1980s looking laser scalpel gun thing. So this is also a, in, if we want to throw this into our game, a, a kind of a test bed for technologies. That is a big theme that's going to be in the game. For those who haven't played Cypher, one of the twists with Cypher is when you find magic items that are called Cyphers, and they are big one-shot items. They're like scrolls and potions on steroids. So perfect example, as well as an homage to a great RPG of the past. Actually, it still may be in print. Paranoia, there's, they're called prototypes. Congratulations, you get a few. Try them out, write down how they work for R&D. Some of them may explode. I do like the idea of this ultimately being a game of friend computer versus a super organism. Uh, but, there's some flavor. Of that, uh, yes. Mongoose currently has the license to it and Paranoia is very much is still in print and is one of the few games that is, yeah, that is satire and humor that is sustainable. As I am fond of saying, farce is easy to do once, comedy is hard to maintain. So any game that can do that successfully, uh, tip of the hat to that. So, uh, and and you mentioned this Trust thing. Trust me, it's, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> and this thing is big enough that as you mentioned, it has its own ecosystems. So there may be rotting things, but that is just a sign that there is probably some carrion eater that hasn't gotten to it yet. And when I think of mystery flesh pet, I think of the uh, abyssal copepods, the macrobacteria, the fungal growths in there. Can you pick one or two and tell us what it is? With the fungal growths, I mean, they're not so exciting, but that was one of the challenges I had because some of the way they described the critters, they describe them like regular critters, like it's more national park and just really bizarre. And fungal growths are just growths that are fungal, but they feed predators and other things that come around. And they hint somehow tourists accidentally get acidically burnt by them during their breeding time. So I had to come up with that. Because I thought that was a great way to throw kind of like a minefield or a landmine in the game. You step on a piece of scab and your foot goes right through and into a little bit of acid as these things are mating and reforming themselves. They have a special name for them, but the, uh, and I'm bad at pronouncing things. So I'm going to stick with like the more common name, which is compound surface fauna. And that the mystery flesh pit has this ability to 
take things. And if it's in there too long or you get lost there too long, you may become part of something else. Like there's this thing called the Druid, which is this moaning mass of bison. That was a bison herd that evidently fell in the pit hundreds of years ago. And they're still in there is one mashed up creature. And one of the reasons why we they have better medical technology, allegedly, in the world of the Mystery Flesh Pit is because they've had to pull some people apart and make them into very crappy cyborgs who probably, in my mind, just basically repeat to themselves, kill me, repeatedly. And I also like, again, pulling this into our mage game, that this goes uh, one of two ways. We go to that, uh, well, the abhuman, and suddenly we find uh, what is very clearly a unicorn skeleton or a rock skeleton or something like that. Or alternatively... In this umbral thinning or whatever, we see a hippogriff. And it's like, no, no, that's not a fantastic creature. That's not a dragon. That is actually a local exotic pet owner. Due to exposure to this, their Komodo dragon, their lorikeet, have merged in this weird way. <laughs> it's just, it's a one-off thing. Don't worry about it. We're, we're going to look. The acid is just them throwing up. Ignore that breath weapon, kids. And one thing you mentioned earlier is the idea of a veil out, which when I think of veil outs, I uh, immediately think of the game, The Esoterrorists. And one of the repeating kind of game angles that we can have is your characters are kind of in the position of controlling these manifestations. And the hard part is not stopping the compound creature on a rampage it's explaining to people and kind of in the cynical corporate game buying their silence and saying okay yeah yeah yeah, this druid came through and destroyed your house no one really got hurt how much how much for you to not sue <laughs> like how do <laughs> how do we stop this and then suddenly your group literally has a budget that says you need to make this manifestation go away for under $12 million because the current product export uh, shipment we have is going to net us about 30 and we're targeting a 25% ROE. So we have about this to work with. So that's, that's the game I didn't want know until now that I, that I kind of wanted to play. <laughs> and this is another one of those great things where we get kind of those Ernst Heckel style drawings of this in the case, it's the parasitic fauna of the Permian basin superorganism. Uh, what's a macrobacteria? I was about to get to that. I okay. actually um, put my foot in my mouth a little bit. The fungal growths are something else. And what I described actually was the macrobacteria. Okay, got it. So what are the fungal growths? The fungal growths, uh, the big part about them is their spores are toxic. So they, you know, as a tourist, you should avoid them and not fall into them everywhere. Everything feeds off everything else. And to be honest, you know, uh, I think the limit of uh, what grows in the Mystery Flesh Pit is Trevor's imagination. Well, actually, we never talked about the amorphous shame. That's something we should actually talk about. Uh, go on. Oh, you haven't heard about that one? No, I haven't. What is it? Trust me. If you knew about the amorphous shame, we would have skipped the fungal growths. So the amorphous shame currently is a blob of material that has a proboscis. So it's like a mollusk without a shell that goes up and it samples the liquids and it goes back. However, when you stick the DNA, it's a weasel and there is a whole pamphlet where it explains how this weasel or it's you know it's a ancestor fell into the pit and slowly evolved losing its eyesight losing its fur losing its limbs as it went from being a weasel to again a, a creature that just a sessile creature that just sits there and you know sucks on things and by the way i can tell you from uh experience even though it's just a little thing with a tongue that creeps people out when it hits their boots Oh, yeah. Um, what the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> what was the Stephen King story of that? Oh, from the sink. Yes. But one, I appreciate whenever murder tubes are in a game. I think mustelids on the whole are unrepresented in games. And the other thing that this presents us with for mage players is we don't have a lot of experience of having like dungeon crawls for mage, especially because you don't know where you're actually going. So maybe teleporting isn't going to be nearly as useful or you do, but this organism literally moves around. And I also like the fact that you have to balance the urge to continue with a time clock, with the fact that this isn't a whole bunch of do or die encounters. It's not like you're coming up against a mind flayer and then a beholder or in mage terms, a Zigrogler, uh, followed by, by a member of the Kalawan or something like that. But it seems like this, it's, it's the game's kind of about this 
gradual being ground down by the pit, as it were, being balanced by the urge to explore. And I think that is a real interesting place to get to that we're not really used to. Well, also, it has kind of a, a sci-fi slash explorer bent uh, in that, you know, what sometimes attacks you isn't something evil. It's just the environment and nature itself, not necessarily being hostile directly at you, but just doing its thing and you keep bumbling into it, you know, or as you're trying to escape and you start running, that's when you look behind you and you don't see the cliff in front of you and you go right over the cliff. So we've talked about a bunch of the things and the places. Is there anything else about the world that you think is particularly interesting or enticing, maybe for someone with an interest in, in either the kind of the corporate uh, satire side of things or the horror world building aspect of it? Like, do you give examples of, no, 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 this is how Anodyne Corporation works? It's an interesting balance because I want to give some detail because, you know, that, that's kind of the, the trick we have to do with role-playing games. You know, in Star Wars, Han Solo doesn't look at his blaster and goes on for three paragraphs about what kind of blaster this is. But if you're selling a book about weapons in Star Wars, you better have three paragraphs about Han Solo's blaster, right? Yeah, you need to explain how the DL-44 works. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I want to add enough where you have enough for a GM to jump off of, but not codify them into a box so there's a whole the whole outside world like how did the bioorganic computers change things what is you know the medical sort of technology you can get with and of course to be even you know more specific especially for like redacted what's the level of surveillance that you can pull off in the world of the mystery flesh pit and uh, i think one of the other things is you know hinting that the mystery flesh pit has different potential exits or pods or colonies that may or may not be attached to it are they all connected with through that blue tissue are they teleport sites to some degree and i think this is one of the one of the neat things that the game uh that the media surrounding the game does is it talks about how society does respond to it so whenever we're dealing with something huge and ridiculous like this there's a lot of cases in the umber and mage where their interpretation is a little bit unambiguous like if you go to the inventium in the umbra Literally, inventions fall from the sky. It's probably a manifestation of humanity's ability to come up with ideas. Or if you want to take the logical positivist thing, it is the realm from which ideas are taken. Cool beans. What does your Kashiyana make of the mystery flesh pit? Your Eastern practitioner or your Greek stoic make of this giant pit? That's a real interesting challenge to someone's worldview or your virtual adept to be like, okay, you think reality is a computer. What what program came up with that, bud? What give me <laughs> I'll let you I'll let you think about it for a minute. Or alternatively, what does the world look like in a world where the technocracy very obviously can't keep wraps on this and it just has to play damage control? How does it maybe your game is to hold off the anodyne is not the technocrat organization, it is controlled by sleepers. How do you slow them down enough when the profit motive is so clear and so powerful that they've gotten the first hint of those prototypes to come back and go, oh, this this particular thing is a very potent aphrodisiac or anti-cancer medication. How do we slow that roll? How do we prevent mortals from getting to that blue thing and how do we cover it up? So there's a bunch of different angles that we can go in here. So thank you so much for inadvertently writing this maid supplement that we're all going to get oh, no, once it's... <laughs> Well, as a tweak, now in Mystery Fleshbit, they do say that tourists do hear voices or a siren call. But if you take that part out, you still have enough here. You can say, this is a thing, but it's not the worm. And it could and be the cult of the thing. And I also like the idea that this is the this is the opposite of the worm. And it just turns out that everything that that's big is utterly terrifying. And there we get our cosmic horror angle back. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so certainly... Uh, this is a game. This is a product that you're working on. Where can we find out more about the RPG side of things? And when it becomes a thing in the world, where can we go get it? Well, right now I have a uh, backer kit email landing page, and I'm going to give you the link so you can send it on to your uh, audience. Hopefully, knocking on wood or any other substance that is solid and dead and not living. Uh, hopefully, by the time your audience gets to listen to this, we're going to be live. But uh, I'm going to give you a link for the email landing page. And that will alert everybody when we're going to go live with the Kickstarter. Yep. We will include that link in the show notes. Also, if you search for Mystery Flesh Pit National Park RPG or Mystery Flesh Pit Backer Kit, you will also get to that page. I will also do a little announcement once it is actually live. So by the time this is out, it will be live, but we are obviously recording it before then. Time travel. And that will get us there. 
Chris, you're also part of, of Gonza Gaming. If we're interested in knowing what other projects you have out in the world, where can we do that? And if people like your work, what else are you working on? So Gonza Gaming is the name I have is kind of my pen name for my, a lot of my cipher stuff. I also go by Christopher Robin Negline. And yes, I am named after that character in Winnie the Pooh. For Cypher, I have a lot of five-star, also gold items. The biggest one is Mortal Fantasy, which lets you put your Dungeons & Dragons archetypes into your Cypher game for those players who are still trying to find their way in Cypher. Because as you know, you always have that one player that are playing, even if it's a modern-day game, they're still playing their Elven Ranger one way or the other. In addition to that, I've done some stuff for Tiny D6. I've done some stuff for Fantasy Age. This is all community content. Also did some 5e for Games Guild. But the big thing I do is I'm a regular writer for the Esper Genesis 5e game, which does science fiction. It's really great. It's a sandbox done by Richard Lescofer. If you've played the Adventure League stuff for Tomb of Annihilation and you raced dinosaurs, you played his rules. And he has really done great stuff with it. And I've enjoyed it. I have a Patreon at Ganza Gaming, and I have a blog that I woefully never keep up to date, uh, The Writer's Bright Cave, and you can check that out as well. And links to all of those things will be in the show notes. You have, it looks like, uh, two dozen or more credits on DriveThruRPG. The link will be in there. Any purchases anyone makes uh, through a link, we'll get a little bit of that, and obviously support Chris as well. Chris, thank you so much for uh, joining us and, and talking about what looks like it's going to be a delightful and slightly messy in the best possible way game. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it was a joy to be here. Mage, like I said, one of my favorite games. I could probably talk about it all night. This has been Mage the Podcast, where I'm quite proud that we talked about a game with the largest organism in existence in it without making a single Yo Mama joke. This episode was made possible by Sean Gallagher, Oracle of Coca-Cola Heartthrobs, competitor Pepsi Fabio, Benjamin Bendelow, Oracle of Project Freefall, the joint U.S.-Soviet PBSO exploration mission, Buck Gregory, Oracle of that Trader Vix right next to the Burger King and the Big Spinning Restaurant, Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the Amniotic Springs Home Hot Tub Kit, Joshua Hiller, Oracle of the Superorganism known simply as Saskatoon. Puka G, Oracle of Chuck Tingle's Inevitable Mystery Flesh Pit tie-in novel. Neil Patterson, Oracle of the Performance of Shen Yun, hosted in the Mystery Flesh Pit. Jay Widener, Oracle of the Poorly Thought Out Aortic Chamber Orchestra, which requires constant retuning due to the high humidity. Mikhail, Oracle of Holy, the official mascot of the Mystery Flesh Pit. The Creverbus, Oracle of the creepiest thing about the Mystery Flesh Pit, that sometimes it goes through all your old Facebook pictures and likes them. And Guy Conan-Stewart. Oracle of the spinning crystals that keep the mystery flesh pit from killing us all. Additionally, thank you to Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Morgan Ron, and Archmaster Patrick McNamara, as well as thanks to Alex, Alexia, Andrews S, Anon, Badurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Sin Shaddis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Fraggerock, George Lara, Eobol, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jason Vines, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Poyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kennedy, Samuel Tobin, Schnabelta Krieger, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rolls. Our EP shout-out this week is to Lols and Stuff. When you put that name into Google, the recommended search term is for Dolls and Stuff, which is the name of a store located in Social Circle, Georgia, which is apparently a place, but based on the dolls they sell, they should have listed their location as squarely in the Uncanny Valley. They have a remarkably broken webpage that requires Adobe Flash and is copyright 2012. They have a wide range of creepy dolls, ranging from a line tied to Marie Osmond to the Middleton doll series, which just looks like a range of children that are seemingly shrunken retirees. The buy button images are all broken, but the PayPal order setup still seems to work. This is a web page where when you gaze at it, it gazes at you. Thank you for your support. Rather listen on YouTube, search Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super like this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. Mage the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at magethepodcast the podcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.